This is episode 35 of the Get In My Garden podcast, and I'm Aaron Moskowitz. Today we have a very interesting and information-packed episode with Isla Bystrom-Williams, founder of Honeymoon Brewery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and her partner James Hill, head brewer of Honeymoon Brewery. They tell the origin story of their new brewery that is focused on alcoholic kombucha, brewed in one of the most pristine environments in the country, at the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. First off, they share their entrepreneurial experiences, the barriers they had to overcome to found their unique brewery, and then they go into the history of kombucha in the United States. Then James talks about my favorite subject, microbes, how they inoculate their kombucha, and how their SCOBY culture evolves with the local indigenous microbes, making it very unique to our high-altitude ecosystem. We talk a lot about microbes and the terroir of different brewing locations. James shares the details of kombucha brewing in general, from home brewing to large-scale operations, how to control the alcohol content and carbonation, and keep it safe for consumption. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever else you listen. And if you want to support the show, please share your favorite episodes on social media and within relevant groups. And please also leave positive reviews on iTunes. Santa Fe's already got some great breweries, but uh, we were happy to join the club. But it's all with Isla here, you know. She was the visionary originally, and uh, she taught me everything I know. And I'll probably let her describe it in her own words. This idea really got started when I was living in north of Seattle. And the craft beer scene and the kombucha scene is pretty big there and the fermented food scene just in general. So I was home brewing beer with my roommates and I was also making kombucha on my own. And then when kombucha got pulled from the shelf, I decided, hey, I really want kombucha with alcohol in it. That's why I was buying it and that's why I liked it. It allowed me to go to yoga and still function. And um, it wasn't as intense as the craft beer that was I was drinking in Seattle, which kind of like one and you're done you know so I was like kombucha is a nice fit because you can have a few and like you feel buzzed but not over the top and so then after my transition of moving from Seattle back to New Mexico I really looked for a way when I met James to just find something that met both criteria categories of kombucha and beer and literally the first date James and I were on we were mixing kombucha and beer and being silly and being like how do how is this gonna work you know so it's been fun and then after it went from the fun stage we took it serious as a serious business endeavor and partnered with some of the local small business resources to really identify can we make a serious go of this so we worked with like ABQID the accelerator program to test the idea. We worked with the NMSBA program at Los Alamos National Labs to really craft the product development. You know, Isla was extremely resourceful from the get-go. Without a lot of startup capital and not a lot of time and resources, it was extremely, you know, integral in our development. It's just been a very interesting concept, you know, when Isla introduced me to the product and taught me a little bit about the history. Uh, You know, when kombucha first hit the shelves back in the 90s, the 2010s, you know, it was a pretty big hit right off the bat especially in certain parts of the country. But it was also, um, there, there was a discrepancy between the way it was being marketed and, and the federal laws around 
alcohol because kombucha just naturally achieves anywhere from half a percent to two percent you know abv at some point someone tested these bottles on the shelves and there's this federal law from the ttb that states that anything over half a percent abv has to be regulated as an alcoholic product and that just kind of took everyone by surprise and you know these pre-existing companies that already had invested in this marketing as a health food and a a non-alcoholic product well they didn't have you know much of a choice they had to go back to the drawing board and they had to use pasteurization techniques or they had to you know research and and uh, choose various cultures instead of others so that they could maintain that that kind of arbitrary level and I thought that was the brilliance of Isla's idea was you know people like this product the way it was you know the original product and it was robust and part of that robustness was the alcohol content and so you know we, we thought that that was an obvious choice. Why change the product to fit your marketing? You should change your marketing to fit the product. And, and on top of that, there's this beautiful s- synergy that, you know, is there in the beverage. When you have kombucha that's got, uh, you know, B vitamins, caffeine, and then you have a little ethanol in there. It's just a really wonderful synergy that interacts in a way that a beer just doesn't. And every type of alcohol kind of has its own personality as far as its physical effects. I just found that fascinating with kombucha. So when you when you kind of tweak up the alcohol content in this beverage, you just have this interplay that's really appealing. So how does that work? So if someone were home brewing, I mean, can you explain the brewing process to someone who's just starting out? I mean, a lot of the people who are listening to the podcast are interested in microbes and natural farming in some way. Mm-hmm. And there's just this great overlap because a lot of people are starting to add microbes, the same microbes like with uh, Bokashi composting, Mm-hmm. or other forms of natural farming, they use microbes for their own benefit, for the plant roots and things sure. like that. So what, what it microbes are they? How does, how does it work? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting. Um, uh, we order our initial SCOBY cultures from a lab in California. Okay. So we have an assay of uh, about, it's about 10 different bacterial species and five different yeast species. Okay. And then, of course, fermenting it here in Santa Fe in an open container the way you do with kombucha. Uh, the aerobic environment allows for uh, an inoculation of native species, mm-hmm. which only exist, you know, in your state, in your city, in your building, in your room, you know, so it, it, it kind of, it inoculates with a, a set of species that you didn't originally begin with, so it evolves. But there's uh, definitely an overlap between, you know, the sort of beneficial microbes that a gardener might use to enhance the rhizosphere health. Those are, you know, there's a lot of the same microbes in our kombucha. It's fair to say that there's quite a few that are just standard in most organic gardens. There's a lot that are just native to vegetables, fruit. There's a certain acetobacter, glucanacetobacter uh, species that exist in the rhizospheres of tea plants so that they actually have been inoculated from the tea that we use. Uh, then there's a wide wide variety of yeasts, you know, that are used in different uh, capacities, like Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's, that's the yeast that's used in beer brewing, wine brewing. That is native to most scoby cultures. Um, Britannomyces brucellensis, that's another species of yeast that's common in, in some of the Belgian sour ale productions. And where did they originally get it? I mean, people been brewing yeast or brewing 
alcohol forever. So sure. this is just what was growing on the outside of the fruits, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Naturally. You know, that's exactly where it came from originally. And then over the, you know, centuries, they, they began, you know, isolating uh, the lees at the bottom of a ferment and uh-huh. would reuse them. So after a while, they maintained a certain culture that they could reuse. But the identification and the, you know, singling out of a single culture of yeast, that didn't happen until well into the 20th century. Single culture fermentation, as widespread as it is today, actually hasn't been that big of a part in in the story of fermentation, you know, in history. Yeah, I so, wondered about that because if you go and you see some of the mass-produced kombucha, there, I think one of them was bought by Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, Kevita or something. Yeah. Pepsi. 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 Okay, mm-hmm. so they're only using one strain, and one of them I think they patented. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. I might. It might be more than one, but there's there there's like a specific number. They patented sure. this. It's kind of alarming. Like, what could that be doing to our bodies? Mm. Yeah, I mean, interesting. It's, I mean, that's one one beautiful thing about mixed culture fermentations in general, and the kombucha industry in general is everybody isn't using the exact same culture. I mean, everybody is using an amalgam of yeast and bacteria. I mean. The the main components, of course, are you want some yeasts that are capable of producing ethanol, which is capable of being metabolized by Acetobacter colonies. But there's a there's a wide spectrum of species that can be utilized and that work synergistically with one another. And as long as you end up with an Acetobacter species that's capable of producing the biofilm, the pellicle, the SCOBY, uh, as well as some yeast species that are capable of providing the ethanol and the metabolites, uh, you're going to have some version of kombucha. And, you know, there are similarities uh, across the world, but every single place is very different. Everybody's kombucha is very different. And when it comes to proprietary blends, the biggest producer in the U.S., uh, they use proprietary probiotics, GTs. So it's it's not surprising. Once, once you have a brand that is really speaking to a customer base and it's very successful, you know, from a corporate standpoint, it makes sense that you would try and isolate whatever culture you're using and protect uh-huh. it for your your own purposes. I mean, there's the flavor component, but there's also might be a health component. So mm-hmm. if that's, if everything is still living in the bottle, which I wonder, right. probably not everything is if it's been refrigerated, right? Well, there might it, be certain strains that can't, I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, a case by case basis. You know, these, these microbes can sustain various levels of temperature ranges, acidity, ethanol content. It really depends on what you're using. You know, most kombucha, of course, is claimed to be probiotic, and most of it is, except for the ones that are pasteurized or what have you. Ours, for instance, we have alcohol content that's above 3 or 4%. And, I mean, we, we can control it. We can go less or more. But there's not uh, definitive evidence or clinical trials or, you know, lab studies that can really define exactly how probiotic something like our product would be. But of course, you know, we're not we're not attempting to be your average kombucha company. We're we're an alcoholic company. So we're not exactly aiming to prioritize like that probiotic effect. How do you get to the higher alcohol content? It's, it's a two-stage process. I mean, there's there's a variety of ways that the industry is doing it. There are other companies doing this. What we do is we produce a kombucha just the same way you would normally, which uh-huh. is an aerobic 
environment. You create a, a sugar tea solution using black tea is what we right. do, or a blend of black and green teas. You inoculate it with with these cultures, mm-hmm. and then you let it ferment. You know, for a matter of you know anywhere from seven to twenty one days, taking pH readings and everything like that along the way. Pellicle forms in the aerobic environment, and once that's where we like it, the flavor's right, the acidity is correct, it's healthy. We then take it out of that environment and we put it in an anaerobic environment and we use brewer's yeast, so more of Saccharomyces cerevisiae and, we, and additional sugars, and we provide an anaerobic environment, which of course is selective for the yeast metabolism of producing ethanol, while then basically hobbling the bacterial's ability to metabolize the ethanol. And then we use temperature controls after that to maintain the finished product once it's arrived to where we want it. Wow. So there are a lot of people doing home brewing of kombucha. I don't think Mm -hmm. many of them are going alcoholic with it at this point. There are beer brewers, a lot of them probably, but uh, what are some of the things that can go wrong? I'm kind of curious about that. With home brewing? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it, you're you're basically leaving a uh, sugar solution out at room temperature, so as everybody knows, mold is everywhere in the world. I mean, uh, and when you're giving it uh, the right temperature and the right environment to thrive, you're risking contamination. Um, but of course, that can be mitigated by adding a sufficient amount of older kombucha. So that's a that's a very typical process that home brewers and commercial brewers use. When you're starting a new batch of tea, you immediately inoculate it with uh, older kombucha that's highly acidic, uh, highly active, and that'll actually drop your pH below 4.0, or it should. That's kind of the safety threshold. So once it's dropped below 4.0, you're kind of in the safe zone. And you're also inoculating it with all of these very active yeast and bacterial cultures that you've already selected for. Mm-hmm. So they begin going to work immediately and they push out and uh, prevent any pathogenic contamination afterwards. But that is a real concern for home brewers. You know, if if they're brewing in unsanitary or uh, unsterile conditions and they're not properly inoculating, properly uh, managing the pH of their initial brew, that could be dangerous. There's a lot of visual indications, you know, you can see mold if, if it's growing. Like, and once you've done it a lot, you know, knock on wood, I've never actually brewed a batch of kombucha that's molded. But once you've done it enough, you can recognize the difference between a healthy scoby pellicle and, you know, some contamination. And I think that's the cool part about kombucha and fermentation um, in itself is that at some level you have to take a risk of uh, exposing it to like environmental factors. But I think in some of the cool things that are happening in fermentation culture, that's exactly what you want to do because then you're exposing yourself to the microbial terroir of the space. And that's what makes it unique and different from like growing kombucha in like a different state or a different elevation or a different community entirely. So it's like it's a it's a trade off with the risk that you're Mm -hmm. opening your brew up to. Yeah, I love it. That's so interesting. So what have you noticed or can you speak to any specific New Mexican traits that you've noticed? I mean, I don't think that we can claim anything this far, you know, like on paper, like this is exactly what's specific to our area. But James and I have always hoped, I hope I'm not speaking for you, but that there's something indigenous about our product. Oh, yeah. And we've been really interested in wild yeast capture. So that's something that we've done before um, and that I think that we'll incorporate as we grow here in this particular 
particular building in this space because we're literally right at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. So we're really curious to see what blows in, gets trapped, and then drops down right here. You I know? love it. That's so awesome because there's this Korean farming method where you take a bag of rice that's cooked with a smaller amount of water. So it's really just it's hard rice, but it's got moisture in it, and you bury it underneath a specific type of tree in the forest and then you go back a month later and it's been inoculated with indigenous microbes and so then that's how you cultivate it by doing that that is so cool there's a customer who comes in on the regular and he was talking about doing that as well well koji rice for um, yeah yeah for rice wine yeah yeah that's so cool whether you're brewing kombucha or you're setting out, uh, you know, a batch of, you know, sugar solution to capture wild microbes, it's always good to have some sort of acidity uh, to begin with, you know, because if you can manage your, your initial pH, you're really weeding out like the vast majority of potential pathogens. Um, so that's that's really like the the best safety advice I can give to anybody who wants to do something like that. But, but once you're there, I mean, it's, um, you know, of, of course there are risks, but you know, as home brewers, that's probably like part of the fun, right? And you, you can put these, these, you know, sugar solutions, warts, musts, whatever you want to call them around your property and your yard up in the mountains under a tree. And you can check on them, you know, you, of course, just let them sit there for a day, take them home, you know, care for them, put them in, put them in an anaerobic container or anaerobic container container see what grows if anything grows see what it tastes like we started to do that you know we we obviously got sidetracked onto like you know our main product lines mm-hmm. but it was definitely you know a point of um, you know it, it was just really fun when we were doing it and we'd probably like to do it some more and i'd say it's safe to say that our kombucha given this the exact same starting cultures the exact same tea recipe everything our kombucha is still going to taste different than a lot of other people's just because it's in this particular room. I love that. I just, yeah. and the idea that we're in New Mexico, we're in Santa Fe, the high altitude, so it's mm-hmm. less oxygen. I don't know how that affects it. There are, everybody has indigenous microbes wherever they are. Yeah. We're so dry, they're yeah. different. And also the air is cleaner than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's I, really interesting. Yeah. I think that helps us. I think that helps you a lot. Mm-hmm. But I'm really curious how it would like literally affect the flavor. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. Sure. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, wine enthusiasts are obsessed with the uh, soil, but you're dealing with, you're creating something that's dealing with the same microbes without soil. Sure. And it's very, very yeah. environmental in a unique way. It's, it's so cool to think of it in that way, too, because for so many years, in terms of the consumer's conversation with terroir, it is all about the soil, mm-hmm. but nobody really thinks about what's above the soil and how yes. that affects the fermentation. So that's a really, really cool perspective to have on it. Well, and, and the traditional terroir that's spoken about in the wine industry, that's a byproduct of the microbial interactions of the root systems and what nutrients that makes available. I mean, it's it has a huge effect on the fruit and it, the microbial activity directly affects the fruit and it's uh, it's a very similar process just a different substrate so instead of soil yeah. we're just talking about the ambient air and the atmosphere and just kind of going off crazy thinking here it'd be really cool to like like you said um, maybe capture some unique species from the soil and combine them with what we're finding from the air 
you know, basically like double whammy of like New Mexican microbes. Maybe you could get a batch in the Santa Fe forest when it warms up yeah. and then bring it back down. Yeah. And then or, that would be great. Or do something crazy too. Like on chef's table, there's, the, there's a Korean, she's like a mad fermentationist and she buries her, you know, kimchi as you do traditionally, but it would be really cool to bury some kombucha in a way that soil didn't get into it and see if that affected it too. Yeah, well, I've actually been curious about incorporating, um, you know, pine needles in some of our brews. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a really interesting flavor. Mm. It's it's native here. It provides more vitamin C. You know, it's it's a healthy component. I still need to do some more discovery around that. You know, it has but, terpenoids, uh, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Alpha pinene. You know, that's that's a bronchodilator, and it's just a really lovely scent. And it could work really well with other things like juniper, maybe. Uh, yeah. But anyway, it, it could be a perfect vehicle for. for native inoculation you know what's cool about that james i like that idea because um because pine needles are antiseptic too right it's just like hops so then just kind of like with the history of beer hops only allowed certain things to thrive in the beer culture right so it kind of like curtailed the way the process went and like what the taste was Mm -hmm. so pine needles would have a similar effect it would basically isolate the culture to only develop in a certain way yeah it could be i was wondering about that I'm not Which sure. Which is good in yeah. a way too. I mean, limitations are good. Sure. I didn't even think about the antimicrobial activity. I just was after the flavor of it. And yeah. then, you know, Aaron's suggestion of inoculating in the mountains, I thought that would be interesting. We should do a little sample batch just at home. Yeah. <laughs> there would be no one in the whole world that I know about selling kombucha that has a special forest blend. Right? <laughs> fine, fine right? kombucha. Oh my gosh. Oh, I love it. This is so cool. See, this is the fun part of owning a business. Like, what are we going to do? Let's go inoculate in the forest. I get really excited about that. And, you know, the podcast I started at the farmer's market, I found a lot of people excited about different things. My vision is that there's a, that the capitalist world, as we know it, is collapsing that corporatism is going to maybe still exist in some way, but we're all creating our own economy. So that's why you know, I wanted to feature people who had creative businesses that were localists, you know, so. That's anyway. very cool. Well, yeah. hopefully we can live live up to that. We well, do here accept, you are. <laughs> we're we're going to accept Bitcoin any day. Here. Yeah, yes. James has always <laughs> oh, okay. been a big uh, supporter of accepting I, Bitcoin. I was torn, you know, between being a brewer, a crypto anarchist. <laughs> When we were looking at different funding options, I was reading some interesting things about platforms that are developing where people are financing their businesses in creative ways with uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Like, there's a really unusual process behind it, but I thought it was kind of cool because it's actually coming up as like in the in the search engines as like an alternative traditional funding. You know? Oh yeah. But I mean, I think that's because millennials are pretty strong early adopters of cryptocurrency and and other generations that are still involved in the financial setup of things are like not so much yeah and when investing in a business the fact that the government might tell you that you can't or needs to like take control of it it's like you need all the power that you can have of your own to like maintain it in the first place and have to deal with some person in an office somewhere that's like yeah you got to do this and this bureaucracy is tough that's something that we've run up against you know getting uh just going through the regulatory hurdles of opening up a business and then the hurdles of opening up an alcoholic business and then telling them you're creating something that they have 
no idea how to handle. Like, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't believe the conversations we had to go through with the TTB about, wait, what are you guys doing? Like, wait, what? So we know kombucha, but wait, now you're doing an alcoholic version of wait, it? Wait, what is TTB? Uh, that's the uh, Tobacco Trade Alcohol- Tax. Alcohol, Tobacco, Trade, and Tax Bureau. They don't, so it doesn't line up with the name, but um, they regulate tobacco, firearms, and alcohol. And I really, in my opinion, no one in the government should be in charge of managing all three of those in one wait, organization. Wait, the firearms is the ATF. This is different. No, they, they do they have do? some regulation over firearms, <laughs> um, or at least on their website. Well, anyway, they're, they're the uh, they're big brother who's in charge of, you know, distributing licenses to breweries, distilleries. They're who we pay our excise taxes to. You know, they're the ones who tell you what your product is, whether it's a beer, a wine, some, a spirit, anything else. Uh, they tell you if you can brew it, how much you can brew it, what you owe to the federal government once you do sell it. You know, so they're just kind of the overarching authority. And it was just very difficult, you know, it's just speaking of trailblazing, whether it's, you know, economics and cryptocurrency or, you know, creating an alcoholic kombucha and just like a brand new genre of beverage. It's just tough. You know, it's 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 all the normal, you know, hassles of starting a company combined with this educational component of trying to explain to the federal officers, you know, what it is that you're trying to do and then trying to interpret that and give you a proper license, you know, for, for a long time, they weren't sure what to call us. And it was, it was months of just indecision. It was, it was interesting. So they eventually landed on beer. I guess they're calling most kombuchas beer now, or, you know, that's the closest thing they can compare it to. But then, you know, once you're labeled as a beer, you have a brewery permit. And so that, for instance, that limits what I can use in, in my production at home. We were making um, hard cider, and I can't do that with our permit here because that's that's a winery permit. So because the the TTB decided that our beverage is going to be considered beer, I'm no longer allowed to ferment apples, you know, to any great quantity. Wow, it's just everything that you're doing to be innovative they're trying to mess with. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it's not like they're trying to do that, but it's just the rigidity of the system. Oh, I know. It prevents so many people from doing anything. We leaned really heavily on all the New Mexican resources for small businesses. We really did. We, mm-hmm. we actually went to like every networking event and every meeting and all of those really helped us get off the ground. And in the past, when I, when I first started, I was like, what do I need to get open? And I just wanted a checklist. There's nobody who can give you a checklist of what you need. It's, it's far more complex, and I don't say that in a way to discourage anyone, but really the only thing that you can do to get open that I found is you have to dig in deep and just call everyone, just cold call everyone, cold call the TTB, cold call somebody that you want to sell your product to, cold call an advisor in your area and just be like, hey, this is my idea. Do you have any pieces of advice? And then you start making your own lists and your own checklist and that's like the only way to i can really reasonably tell anyone who's an entrepreneur like how to do this well and take advantage of the community resources that are available to you you know mm-hmm. one of isla's first steps was going to um the santa fe business incubator and she just pitched them and they're a network and a community of, of business professionals investors and you know they run the gamut and they were able to listen to her hear her out they told her the same thing that she's telling your audience right now why don't you cold call some people see if there's any desire for this product at all 
And so that's what Isla did. She cold called Whole Foods and they're like, absolutely. It's a third of our refrigerated beverage space. And to be honest with you, GT's original, the alcoholic over 21 is selling better than you wow. know his others. So are they the, carrying your product now? No, we're they not distributing be. it. We're, oh, okay, but you will be maybe. Yeah, we're pushing really hard to get there. Uh, you know, everything takes time and we're a skeleton crew. So mm-hmm. we're, we're doing our best to get into distribution, but we're not there yet. Gotcha. Product market validation is very important, you know, before you quit your day job and try to put together a business plan and a product, you know, minimum viable product. Try and do some research around who you th- who you think your customers are going to be. Try and test your assumptions. Listen to people, you know. And we did a lot of that. We did a lot of A-B testing. We set up different marketing ads on Facebook just to kind of experiment to see how people were responding to this idea and what approach to use. And the key with that, I would encourage people who are wanting to be entrepreneurs to really look into uh, lean customer discovery, mm-hmm. figure out what that means. And it's very, very hard to solicit unbiased feedback feedback about your ideas so you have to be creative and dedicated and we use things like heat maps you know to like see like are people interested in the science of kombucha or the alcohol component and along with kind of what James was saying part of our story as entrepreneurs is finding out that you have to persevere through lots of obstacles but you have to be humble enough to change and pivot when when it's important to do that. Uh, We weren't sure what people were really looking for and it took a lot of customer discovery for us to ascertain that people are actually much more interested in lower ABV products these days, especially when it comes to kombucha or people who drink kombucha. They want something sessionable and moderately alcoholic. So yeah, like I was saying, there's probably numerous mini pivots along the way. So we don't know for sure about the microbial activity in alcoholic kombucha, right? But are those things that your customers have been interested in? Absolutely. Yeah, people ask us if it's still probiotic and is this, you know, a healthier beer? And I'm personally always quick to say this is an alcoholic product. Alcohol is not not healthy by itself. This is not what this is. But having said that, I mean, you're, you're still drinking tea, you know, you're still drinking black and green teas with, with their antioxidants, their minerals, their vitamins in concentrated form. We use quite a lot of tea, more than you would make in a normal cup of tea, you know, so they're obviously healthy components, but we don't go so far as to call this healthy per se. So, and I think that's fair, you know, I think it's, and kombucha as, as a category is still completely unproven on a clinical basis. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of uh, division on that because yeah. Andrew Weil, the famous herbalist doctor, he recommends not to drink kombucha because sure. he thinks that there's certain yeasts that are antibacterial and when you eat, get them in your gut, it's like taking an antibiotic. But I mean, that has not been so many people's experience and it feels so good to drink kombucha. <laughs> I wouldn't go, yeah. I, I don't think I would go so far as to call kombucha an antibiotic. <laughs> but, but there are risks, of course, you know, and uh, obviously pregnant women or people with compromised immune systems, they should be wary of drinking something that has so many living organisms in it and is so acidic. People who have very sensitive digestive issues can can be highly troubled by the acidity in kombucha. It's definitely not for everybody. I think the jury's still out as far as the health benefits or the risks. I yeah. think there's a lot of a lot of research left to be done. But it's indisputable that it's got all the health benefits, the proven health benefits of tea.
When you're inoculating with native species that are that have evolved to thrive in this particular environment, you know, going back to your point of low oxygen, high altitude, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, you know, you're you're gonna create a much healthier fermentation, much more vivacious product in the end. Yeah, and yeah. that's exactly what your body wants. <laughs> exactly. Because that's a big part of the kombucha movement is getting these microbes in our body. That's yeah. how it was marketed, at least, right? Come in and try it. Like it's just so much different than drinking a beer. It just it, it feels good. It's it one, of my, it. one of my favorite drinks. You know? Oh, it's awesome. And so how does it get carbonated? So with with our product, we don't do natural carbonation because okay. we have so many different components and cultures that we're using for different outcomes uh-huh. that we can't just let them all play nice together in a bottle. So we do use forced carbonation. I see. And, and so if you put it all in a bottle and you close it, that's how they do it without Yeah, that's what a lot of homebrewers do. If you okay. just have a regular primary fermentation of kombucha, you stop it or you add a little sugar to it, whatever you want to do. But before it's completely fermented out and then you put it in an anaerobic bottle, just closed top, the fermentation will continue, but there will be nowhere for the CO2 to exit. So it gets trapped and it gets dissolved in the liquid and that creates the carbonation for most home brewers. But when you're on a commercial scale, that's difficult to do. And I think we'd be open to it if we were just doing our house kombucha, but with our kind of hybrid process, it just hasn't really seemed viable to me without risking the end flavor. There's something about carbonation it just everybody loves it oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's, i heard someone tell me the other day that it's actually it's that same biochemical reaction that capsaicin can give you when you eat a like nice hot bite of chili and it's that beautiful like pleasurable pain it's like a, a similar reaction that's you know they were saying that's why soda is part of the reason soda was so addictive was everyone just loved, it releases like, something in your brain exactly some, that's cool some endorphins or something that's awesome and not to mention it helps with uh, you know the essence like the nose of the beverage you can, oh yeah, releases of course. a lot of uh, fragrance. Mm. Come in and check us out and continue to homebrew it because it's an amazing thing to do. It's been really rewarding for us and kombucha is a wonderful thing and I hope more people get into it and even your gardeners. We've been having this conversation with a couple people. They're using like our spent tea leaves and scobies to inoculate mm-hmm. their compost piles. You know, like I said, I could bring out the, the actual list of our, our cultures for you, but a handful of those are commonly found in the rhizosphere. So it's, you know, this is something that's really cool and that like gardeners and homebrewers can both get on board with and it's just fun I highly recommend it thanks for listening to the show next month we have some great episodes planned more on aquaponics cannabis mushrooms and much more check out the awesome honeymoon brewery when you're in Santa Fe meet Isla and James and try out their delicious beverages please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever else you listen And if you want to support the show, please share your favorite episodes on social media and within relevant groups. Please also leave positive reviews on iTunes. I love when people reach out to me with feedback or ideas. Please email me at aaron at getinmygarden.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye.